You can be seated. And uh, if those who are reading would go ahead and make their way up to the microphone up here, that would be great. Thank you. A lot has happened in the Bible since we were last together somewhere in the story. God has brought the ancient Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. They have wandered for 40 years in the deserts of Saudi Arabia and Jordan. They have crossed the Jordan River and resettled themselves in the land where their ancestors lived hundreds of years before. This is the land that they believe God promised to their ancestors and that God would allow them to stay in that land if they remain true to their covenant with God. Now, covenant is a relationship of loyalty in which the people experience the reality of having been blessed to be a blessing. And then they demonstrate that by living differently than the people around them. But they really don't manage to do that consistently. They're not a unified people at this point. They're a group of different tribes who are constantly clashing and meshing with one another and with the non-Hebrew tribes who live in the land. Like all of us, they go through cycles of being close to God and feeling far from God. And when strong leadership is needed, God raises up men and women to serve as judges. Now, these judges really were tribal chiefs, and they acted as arbitrators, as battle leaders, and as prophets who spoke for God. The book of Judges ends with the statement, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is basically just a setup for disaster. So we pick up the story this morning at the end of the life of a judge named Samuel. And although the tribes were not really unified, all of them had recognized Samuel's wise leadership. He had led them through some really difficult times together and had helped them renew their covenant with God. But Samuel was not going to live forever, and the tribes were getting nervous about who was going to lead them after that. So let us listen now in the reading of scripture for the word and the wisdom of God. But first Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the leaders, elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all other nations have. But this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know 
This is the word of God for all people. So next weekend, Hayes High School is performing the play The Crucible. And our own Rachel has one of the roles in it, so that I hope you guys will take time on Friday night or Saturday night to see it. The Crucible is set during the Salem Witch Trials. But was The Crucible written in 1692? No, it was not. The Crucible was written 260 years after the Salem Witch Trials in 1953. And so if you think about what's happening in 1953, it's easy to see that this is not just a play about the Salem Witch Trials. It's a play about Joe McCarthy and communism and the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities. Did anyone see the 2017 movie Detroit? Anybody else see that? Yeah. It's based on a true story about the racial violence that happened in Detroit in 1967, so 50 years earlier. Which means that likely it is not a perfect retelling of the stories of the individuals who are portrayed in that movie. But it's not hard to understand why movies about racial violence are compelling for us in our current era. See, we use the stories of our past to help us understand our present. We use the stories of the past to help us narrate to ourselves what's going on right now. And in many ways, the Old Testament does exactly the same thing. Most scholars recognize that each of the books in this Old Testament library was edited into its final form over many years. Not just one person sat down and wrote each book from start to finish. Probably a lot of these books started as oral tradition, as stories that are told verbally from one generation to the next. And then along the way, the different versions of the stories that people tell, they get compiled together. And sometimes we can even see really different perspectives right in the same book. Because everyone who tells a story has a perspective and they have an agenda. And we know even today, the most supposedly neutral of news reporters, the people who are doing their best, they always have to choose what to include and what not to include, don't they? We all do whenever we tell our stories. It's impossible to include everything, and the same is true with the Bible. And so if we want to understand what it might be saying to us now, it's really helpful to start by trying to understand what it was saying to them then. So as we begin to ask what this story is saying to us now, here's a little perspective on what it might have been saying to them then. Now, as always, smart people who love God disagree about how to interpret the Bible, but I'm going to give you the information that's most compelling to me because I also have an agenda. Many years after this story was written, the ancient Hebrew people were invaded by a more powerful country. And after some really brutal battles, the upper class folks were carried away into exile and the common people were left behind in a devastated and occupied territory. This is the time period known as the exile. And this was a defining event 
for them as a people. And it's the background for much of the Old Testament. Most of what we have written down in the Old Testament as we read it now, we believe it was written down during or shortly after this time of exile. And like we still do when something terrible happens, when this terrible event happened to them, the people began to ask themselves, how could this happen to us? How did we get here? And part of this answer to the question of how did we get there is their memory of the story that we read this morning. At a crucial moment in their history, they decided to stop relying on God and try to take the easy way out. Which is something that we all understand because we have all done that, haven't we? We have all felt tired. We have all felt overwhelmed by our circumstances. And we have all come up with a really great idea to solve our problem. We've gotten tired of doing things the right way and tried to do them the easy way instead. That's what happens here in this story. The people say, just give us someone to take care of things for us. Someone to fight our battles for us. The key thing that they say is we want to be like the nations around us. The challenge to that is that the cost and the joy of being followers of Jesus is that we are called to not be like everyone else around us. From the beginning, from God's first promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would be blessed to be a blessing, we have been called to live differently in the world. Living differently means not relying on the things that the rest of our culture relies on. And that takes a great deal of trust in God. And this is where the ancient Hebrew people make the mistake that we can learn from. When things got hard, they chose to be like everyone else. And they did it even though God warned them what would happen. God tells Samuel to warn them that if they get themselves a king, if they want to be like everyone else, then they will be like everyone else. Their society will be restructured to look like other societies, with people being forced into jobs to support the establishment, with men being conscripted into a standing military, with the best of their crops and their livestock being taken from them to feed the elites, and the people will become slaves, just like they were in Egypt. They are warned about this, and they still say, nope, this is what we want. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether they didn't believe Samuel or they just didn't care, but I suspect that they didn't believe him. Because I know when I've decided what I want to do, I usually just don't believe the wise people who tell me how it might not go so well as I'm hoping. And Sam mentioned this, like a good parent, after God has warned the people what would happen and they are bound and determined to have a king anyway, 
God gives them what they want. And that's what it means for God to respect our freedom. God does not punish the people for wanting a king. God just allows them to have what they want and experience the natural consequences that are going to result from that. The warning here for us is that when we try to take the easy way out, we become slaves to the thing we thought would save us. See, we think we're going to be okay when we just get that next thing. When we just get a little bit more money. When we just get a nicer house. When we just get a newer car. When we just get a more prestigious job. When we finally find that perfect person. When we lose the weight. These are often the things that we wind up putting our trust in. We trust these things for our happiness, for our security. We feel like something's not okay right now, and we need to get something new in order to make things okay. These are the things that we think will save us. But these are also the things that can enslave us. They can be fine. Maybe they are. But my point is, if they're not part of God's design for us in our own lives to do more justice, to love more, to be more humble, then at best, they're going to be distractions, and at worst, we will be their slaves. This is one of those stories in the Bible about what we shouldn't do. <laughs> There's stories about what we should do and stories about what we shouldn't do. It's a cautionary tale for us. It's a chance for us to see our own situations through another lens. But I'm not going to leave us this morning without some good news. Because even after this warning that God gives, and a lot of that warning winds up coming true, God still blesses the people. They have the opportunity to make other choices along the way. They make good choices. God blesses them. They experience the natural consequences of making good choices, which is often how the Old Testament talks about God blessing people. Each one of our choices changes our path a little bit. But none of our choices are irredeemable. None of them. God never gives up on us. God never stops offering us opportunities to make things better. To make a different, better choice. One of their kings, the person, the, this monarchy they've been warned about, one of the kings is King David. And his reign is remembered as the golden age of Israel. He's an ancestor of Jesus. So there can still be blessings here. God can and does work for good in any situation, especially when we invite God into that situation. But when we deliberately ignore the wise counsel in our lives, and when we make choices that we know are the easy thing and not the right thing, in fact, when we just pretty much ignore God, we really just shouldn't be surprised that it's a lot harder for us to recognize where God is at work. God wants to help us make wise choices. God surrounds us with people who can help us make wise choices. God gives us this weird and wonderful book full of stories to help us learn how to make wise choices. 
And it's not just in the Old Testament either. In the New Testament, the book of 2 Peter was written to Christians who were struggling to live differently than the cultures that were surrounding them. It's a lot more like our time. These aren't tribes who live separately, right? Now we live as Christians integrated in the rest of the world. And these Christians are struggling with what it means and how they go about living differently than the folks around them. It was really obvious that people who were following Jesus were making different choices than their neighbors. So to these followers of Jesus, who were tempted to take the easy way out, Peter opens his book with these words of encouragement. He says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Christ, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through this glory and goodness, God has given us very great and precious promises. So that through them, you may participate in God's divine nature, escaping the world's passionate desire for decay. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your trust or your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, endurance, and to endurance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. He lays out this pattern of what it means to walk humbly, to grow in our spiritual maturity. Through God's own power, we are empowered to participate in the divine nature, to be like Christ. God woos us and invites us to grow in our trust in a way that leads to self-control, that leads to enduring difficult circumstances without taking the easy way out and ultimately, ultimately leads to us making choices that are totally in line with God's love for the world. We absolutely can do it. Amen.